A large U.S. industry is set to make a settlement with former employees for $765 million, and a federal judge says it's not enough. The industry was the NFL, and the issue was concussions in players. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We will be discussing the NFL and concussions in the great book, The League of Denial, with author Mark Fainaruwada. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So for our non-football fans who might be listening, who was Mike Webster? Sure. Mike Webster is certainly one of the greatest centers to ever play the game. He was a Hall of Famer. He played in Pittsburgh um, and was part of a, a Steeler team that won four Super Bowls in the 1970s, the, the team of that decade, really. In a, um, and he was the bedrock of those teams, uh, sort of very much a working-class guy. He grew up in uh, northern Wisconsin, um, was an undersized player who um, – you know, when initially drafted, people didn't think would make it, but but had just an unbelievable work ethic and, and was central to the Steelers becoming the dynasty that they were in the in the 70s. Webster becomes an integral part of the story we tell in our book because subsequent to retiring, Webster essentially loses his mind um, over a period of time. He dies at the age of 50 um, in 2002. Um, but by then, has has really had his life deteriorate in a dramatic fashion, not only physically but but mentally as well. Um, he he reaches a point where his his family and friends will tell you that he's he's sort of unrecognizable to them. When he retired, a lot of people thought he could become a coach or or a broadcaster. He was very smart and eloquent about the game, um, but instead had this just tragic downward spiral um, that left him, you know not even remembering how to get to the store around the corner from his house, um, you know, struggling to remember people in his life, um, you know, having opening, you know, maybe a dozen bank accounts, struggling financially, you know, writing thousands of letters to friends and family, many of them becoming indecipherable at the end of his life. And when Webster dies in 2002, that part of his life has become somewhat public, and he ends up on the the autopsy table of a, of a doctor named Bennett Amalu. Um, and Amalu is the neuropathologist on call at the Allegheny County Coroner's Office in 2002. He doesn't know a thing about football, um, but Amalu makes a decision dealing with, with Webster at that moment that really changes the course of football because Webster becomes ground zero in the discussion around concussions and brain damage in football. It's kind of odd that he chose to do an autopsy on his brain, which usually probably wouldn't be for the you know, the 50-year-old who seemed to die of a cardiac disease. Yeah, that's exactly right. Webster, as you said, dies of cardiac arrest. There's a notation on the death certificate that says a secondary issue is related to um, concussions, uh, the repetitive trauma that he had suffered. Um, but Amalu decides, having, having heard a little bit about the, the, the trajectory of, of Webster's life, um, he's really curious, wondering what is it that possibly could have caused this man to have such problems in his life um, and it's that decision to look at Webster's brain and then subsequently analyze it and find that it's um, determined to have this disease that, that Amalu identifies as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, CTE, previously only noted in, in boxers and steeplechase jockeys, um, and, and Amalu connects this to football. And it's, and it's that link that leads to um, you know, really what is the NFL's concussion crisis. So with Mike Webster, was there something as him as a player or some other things that he did that kind of set him up for doing all this, or was this just how he played, or was there something specific to Webster versus other football players? 
Well, I think that, that you know, it's really a, a question that remains open about exactly why are some players more susceptible to this than others. There's an ongoing line of research around this that, that suggests that, you know, rather than the obvious concussions that we see and that we know when, a, for example, a, a defensive back blows up a wide receiver out in open field and we see the replay time and time again on ESPN, for example, it's really the, the repetitive nature of the sport, the battling that goes on at the line of scrimmage. Uh, one offensive lineman against another defensive lineman, the running back running into a linebacker time and time again on plays, that, that is potentially the real issue. And, you know, as the research has revolved around this and we see more and more players being diagnosed with this disease first seen in Webster, um, you know, there seems to be an indication that, that a number of the players have actually been linemen or, or linebackers rather than defensive backs or, or quarterbacks. So there's a, a theory around this that it's much more about sub-concussive hits than it is actually just the, the obvious concussions that we might see. I think you guys write about 25,000 collisions Webster had over the course of his career, something like that. Right. At one point, Webster's asked by the doctor who's, who's looking at him, have you ever, you know, he's, this is later in his life, have you ever been in a car crash? And Webster says, well, you know, no, but basically, I, you know, I've been in the equivalent of 25,000 car crashes by virtue of playing in the NFL. So for the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, how is this different? Because I, I, I think as medical people, we're really comfortable with that kind of pugilistica, that kind of punchy boxer. But is this different than, than what they saw in boxers? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting that it depends on which scientist you talk to about this, that, you know, Amalu viewed it as a version of CTE, a sort of like earlier version before to hit this extreme place that you see sometimes in boxers where their speech is incredibly slurred and and they're, they're slowed down considerably. Um, Anne McKee, who's done considerable research on this at Boston University, views them as very similar. Um, there's certainly arguments that there are, are distinctions between the two, but the general theory is that, um, that in the same way that boxers, by the virtue of repetitive pounding that they take, um, are susceptible to brain damage and problems, um, that the changes that people are, are seeing in the brains of these football players are, are similar in nature, that that there's a distinction between this and, you know, what you might see in later in life in some sort of Alzheimer's, that this clearly distinguishes itself from Alzheimer's um, or the typical dementia of someone getting older. You're seeing this in, in Mike Webster's case, he was 50 years old. Um, in Dave Dewerson's case, another football player um, who dies tragically by killing himself and donating his brain, he was 45 years old at the time, and they, they saw this development of, of tau deposits in the brain that were like Alzheimer's, but distinguished because they were in different parts of the brain, much more haphazard, and again, showing up at a much earlier age than you'd expect. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, John Russell. We are discussing the NFL and concussions and the book League of Denial with its author, Mark Fainaruwada. So, Mark, have they found this CTE in other players? You said Dewerson. You said Mike Webster. Right. At this point, um, I think the numbers that Ann McKee in, at Boston University, she, she right now is the sort of foremost authority on this, seen more brains of former NFL players than anybody. I believe the number at this point is they've seen 54 uh, brains of former NFL players, and they've found this disease, CT, in 52 of the brains. Now, she'll be the first to point out that while that's a dramatic number, um, they're looking at a very you know, uh, skewed data set. They're only looking at autopsied brains because that's the only way you can discover this, and they're only looking at brains that have the folks who clearly had issues and, and their families decided they wanted to donate or they decided before they died they wanted to donate. So there's real questions about 
um, whether the prevalence will bear out the numbers that they look like right now. But but clearly they've seen this in a in a number of players, and they're continuing to to see it as they do autopsies. So you can understand these players who played 17 years in the NFL. Maybe this is kind of the the price they pay for doing it. But have they seen this in kind of younger people who don't necessarily have you know 17 years of pro football? They have, and I, and I think that was one of the most startling things to Ann McKee is she ends up seeing it a high school player at one point as well as a a young college player. And I think that's part of what has led to some of the theories around the repetitive nature of the hitting um, and, uh, and the idea it's not just sort of singular blows. Um, you know, you've got kids who are playing, obviously, since they were younger, um, high school, uh, Pop Warner. Um, and so there's some suggestion perhaps that relates to the cumulative nature. Is there, are there questions about are certain people more susceptible uh, perhaps genetically, they become more susceptible for some reason. I think those are the real, um, you know, there's a lot of science that still has to play out around that. Um, but there have been um, younger players identified, and, and McKee has said that was most striking and, and disturbing to her, frankly. So the NFL finds out about, you know, this is going on and some of their former employees who are really getting sick, dying young. They're finding this. How did the NFL respond to all this? It's interesting. When, when Dr. Romalo first sort of identified CTE in Mike Webster's brain in 2002, he, he will tell you he believed that he thought his findings would be embraced by the NFL. Again, this is a guy who knew nothing about football. He came from Nigeria, um, had never seen a football game until he came to the, to the States. Uh, maybe he had watched one on television briefly, thought the sport was sort of alien and odd. Um, but he thought, nevertheless, look, I, I've made this discovery in a football player and the league is going to embrace it. And what happened was, they attacked Dr. Amalu. Um, they sought to have not only his paper discredited when he tried to present and publish a research paper on this, they actually sought to have it retracted, which, which of course, you know, we learned in the medical community is akin to you know, accusing someone of plagiarism or fraud. Um, it would have destroyed his career. Um, in fact, that paper was published, but what we, what we point out over, you know, is a trajectory really of two decades of uh, a trajectory of denial by the NFL um, they started looking at this issue back in 1994 as, as they had a concussion issue rising around players retiring early uh, or, or several high-profile players being injured. But, um, you know, they, they formed a committee, and instead of what looked like a committee that would, with brain experts, the head of the committee actually turned out to be a rheumatologist and a team doctor named Elliot Pellman. And, and the committee that they put together published a, about 16 research papers in a single journal neurosurgery that happened to be edited by a consultant to the New York Giants football team. And so um, those papers sent a message over two decades, you know, over time that said, look, concussions are not a major issue in the NFL. Um, This is not a problem. Uh, NFL players are not susceptible to brain damage because of playing in the game. Um, Essentially, this is no problem. And so they were putting out those papers, paper after paper, saying that, well, at the same time, when you had scientists like Amalu or Ann McKee or others raising red flags about this, um, rather than, you know, really taking a look at those scientists, it appears they, they rather attack them. The, the parallel seems very much like putting the tobacco industry in charge of the lung cancer research, you know, articles that get published. It, it was really kind of chilling, you know, not that people knew, but they, they knew and they didn't do anything about it. Yeah, we, we draw that, that parallel some in the book. We spent some time on looking at big tobacco, and the analogy is first, first made publicly uh, at least in a big way, by uh, Congresswoman Linda Sanchez when 
the NFL is hauled before Congress in 2009, and she says that it's a lot like big tobacco. And there's no doubt the parallels around the science are there. When you look at um, this sort of two-pronged attack, one, creating a body of science by its own researchers, some of whom are you know, questionable in terms of their backgrounds with the brain, that body of science minimizing the issue, and then you know, conversely uh, attacking those independent scientists who would suggest there's a real problem, that, that definitely mirrors the, the approach that's taken by Big Tobacco. You know, the distinction Steve and I, my brother and you know, colleague always talk about is, you know, look, uh, you know, as, as smoking is really attacked as an issue, ultimately and, and revealed to be what it is, you know, no one really misses that smoking has been exposed the way that it has. Um, you know, we don't miss smoking in elevators or smoking on planes, but clearly football is a different animal. This is a beloved major part of our culture, um, and that's where the, the analogy begins to fall apart. But in terms of how the NFL attacked the science, I don't think there's any doubt you can make that comparison. So has the NFL changed its approach to their players? Well, it's a, it's a complicated question because, on the one hand, there's no doubt rule changes have been made. They clearly seem to be uh, making efforts to to find ways to legislate out these big hits that we were talking about earlier, where uh, an obvious hit, helmet-to-helmet hit. Um, they've reduced the time of hitting that goes on in practice, which I think is, you know, I don't think anybody would argue is, is maybe the most major change they've made. You know, we talked about Mike Webster earlier. You know, when he played in his time, they, those guys were hitting virtually every day during practice and in, in, in training camp twice a day. So um, that's a big change to be sure. Um, but at the same time, I think when you talk to the leaders of the NFL or when you see them quoted, Commissioner Goodell, for example, most prominently, you know, he's saying the same thing now about this issue that he was saying back in 2009 before Congress, which is when asked about whether there's a link between football and possibly getting brain damage, he says, well, we're just going to let the medical people decide that. We're going to let the research play out. Well, he said that in 2009. He said that again in 2013. But, you know, to the many medical people who've been studying this issue for years, they think that answer has already been done. The question is now about prevalence. It's about, you know, are there genetic predispositions, other issues like that. But there's very few people you hear arguing against the, uh, the link between, you know, hitting your head time and time again, doing an activity and the possibility of, of long-term issues. An, an amazing book, and, and I really don't think we kind of captured everything uh, that happened. So we're with Mark Fainaruwada, and uh, his book is League of Denial, a great read, and I, I think an important thing for anyone who's a, a sports fan, I think anyone who's a parent of children who are trying to make a decision to, you know, what sports should our kids be playing. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.